0: Hello and welcome to Good People to Know, a down-to-earth podcast brought to you by WFI Insurance. My name is Andrew Beer, Executive General Manager of WFI, and during this series I'll talk with agricultural industry leaders, scientists, politicians and more about the things that matter most to regional Australians. From heatwaves and bushfires to flooding and cyclones, at WFI we see the damaging consequences of the effects of climate change on people and communities. I know that many of you see firsthand how natural disasters are becoming more devastating and expensive for communities. For years, WFI and our parent company, IAG, has invested in understanding how severe weather events are altering in a changing climate. Today we have WFI's own meteorology specialist, Dr Bruce Buckley, who's here to talk about climate change and the risk it poses to regional communities and the agricultural sector. Not only does Bruce have a long history studying the climate, here at WFI, as well as stints at the BOM and as a meteorologist for the Australian and Japanese Olympic sailing teams, he also comes from a West Australian farming family and understands firsthand the undeniable link between farming, the land and the climate. Hi Bruce, great to have you on the line today. Um, before we get started, could you just do a quick introduction of, of who, who you
1: are? Uh, sure thing, Andrew. I've been with IIG now for something like 13 years. I'm their principal weather and climate person, essentially covering anything uh, across IIG's businesses to do with weather and climate matters. And of course, in, in the insurance sector, uh, the weather pops up quite frequently. So yeah, I've been involved in a lot of very interesting weather events uh, over the years.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Before we get uh, into your, onto your research in a bit more detail, I understand that you come from a WA farming family. How did you go from farming to meteorology? Well, essentially when
1: I was growing up, uh, there's an orchard up in the Perth Hills. It's one of the larger orchards up there. And uh, you know, from a stage of early child through my teenage years, you know, I used to be up there picking fruit uh, year in, year out, and uh, saw the dramatic effects of uh, the weather uh, on the fruit crops. Uh, at times, you'd have a severe hailstorm and move through, you'd lose the entire crop. Other times be excessive drought conditions and really struggling just to get a crop off at all. So from that, my interest in meteorology grew and I sort of ventured down the path of meteorology as a result
0: of that. And it sounds like your history has really informed your present. The undeniable link between farming, the land and natural climate cycles sparked your passion for what you do today. So let's start at a higher level. And in simple terms, can you tell us what the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change is telling us? Yes, uh, certainly there, Andrew. It's, it's
1: really been a confirmation of some of the previous advice that they've been giving over the past 30 years. Uh, one of these sad things is, though, that they're really tending to acknowledge that the Paris Accord targets of 1.5 degrees is not really achievable, not the, uh, the way things are going at the moment around the world, and even two degrees is a bit doubtful. It's uh, realistically more like a, a two and a half to three degree future that we're looking at. Now that's you know towards the end of the current century. Uh, they have confirmed uh, previous findings, and they now have a lot of evidence to substantiate that. And some of the most alarming findings they've got it really relates to the uneven nature of climate change. And so you're looking at extremely large changes to things such as temperature extremes, and these competing into things such as the severity of droughts and the intensity and frequency of bushfires. And so, of course, they do dramatically affect the rural communities around Australia. There's also uh, some very alarming uh, news about the melting of the ice sheets and the loss of Antarctic uh, sea ice. This has flow-on effects to accelerating the rate of sea level rise and it leads to the retreat of sandy shorelines all the way around Australia.
0: So, Bruce, it sounds like there's still hope, but our opportunity to change things is narrowing. And with changing levels of natural peril risk, the changes we're seeing will no doubt impact on the insurance industry. You and the Natural Perils team, along with the US National Centre for Atmospheric Research, has conducted extensive research in how climate change could impact natural perils in Australia. Can you tell us a bit more about what the research is telling us? Well, we've been working with the
1: US National Centre for Atmospheric Research for many years, and we've actually interacted also with the research uh, institutions around Australia. And as a result of that, we've produced a report, it's called Severe Weather in a Changing Climate, and we did this so that uh, we can really try and focus in on those events, or those severe weather phenomena that cause damage as it uh,
0: uh, affects the Australian communities, and over the last week or two, you know, we've had something like a tornado just out of, outside of Bathurst. How re- regular are those sort of events in Australia? Well, it's one of the
1: things we are actually learning. Uh, we've got improved observational technology these days, and we've we've come to realise that we we do see more tornadoes around Australia than we previously did recognise. You know, these days with social media, people are catching them on their mobile phones and sharing them around. But uh, one of the things we also do notice is that we are seeing an increase in our severe weather caused by uh, severe thunderstorms. And this is where we use our radar technology. You know, these days we have something like 20 to 25 years of historical radar records. And it's telling us that we are seeing uh, actually a quantifiable increase in the number of severe weather events. Some of these can produce your tornadoes. Some of them can produce your large and giant hail. And we've certainly seen enough of those uh, large and giant hail events in the past few years. Uh, some have been very devastating for, for crops. and um, and we are also seeing a southward shift in the frequency of these severe hail events. And so, you know, traditionally we've always thought about hail as being like a northeast New South Wales, southeast Queensland phenomena, but uh, more and more we're seeing these massive hail storms affecting central parts of New South Wales all the way down into Victoria. In fact, Victoria itself in you know, the capital there, Melbourne, have experienced four major hail storms in the past decade. And prior to that, there'd only been one in the previous 100 years. And so we're seeing some quite marked trends, in you know, especially in severe weather associated with these thunderstorms.
0: Just as a, as a recent example of that, I, I guess uh, tropical cyclone Saroja that took place in April 2021, um, uh, you know, a, a reasonable size cyclone, but came a fair way south of where normally expected. So is that sort of the thing you're talking about? One of the biggest concerns that we have is the southward extension
1: of the risks prone to tropical cyclones. Now, Saroja was a Category 3 cyclone, These are fairly common if you look through the Kimberley, Pilbara, and in fact, for large parts of the northern and northeastern parts of uh, Australia. But Seraja was really quite extraordinary in the fact that we had a um, Category 3 cyclone. So this is a cyclone that produces hurricane force winds, and it went smack bang over Kalbarri. And it continued to produce extremely damaging winds all the way through the uh, northern central wheat belt. In fact, there's even damage down as far as the southeastern areas near Esperance as it went through. Now it's this sort of event that we're really focusing in on because we do expect to see more occurrences of these types of tropical cyclones extending further south and in fact in the case of saroja we were incredibly lucky that it didn't it just uh, the track wasn't something like 50 kilometers further south because that way the uh, track would have instead of gone over Kalbarri. it would have dramatically affected uh, geraldton and some of the uh, the larger towns further to the south so we are aware that these trends are starting to appear and we are expecting them to you know, gradually increase as we're getting into the, you know, the future decades. It doesn't mean that we'll see them every year, but what it does mean is we need to be prepared ahead of time, realizing that these kind of changes are you know, really inevitable. And so with this, this is one area where IG have been you know, really been out there trying to promote change. And you know, what we're trying to do is promote change in the right sense. So we try to understand what the changing risks are, and then we try and get policies in place and practices in place to help to mitigate those. So in the case of Saroja, the logical thing to do is to try and tighten up the building codes in areas further to the south. Uh, This applies not only in the southwest of Western Australia, but also for the southeastern parts of Queensland and in fact in the northeastern parts of New South Wales.
0: What are we seeing as risk for regional Australia and particularly the agricultural sector? And have you got any specific examples you could share?
1: Uh, certainly, probably for regional Australia, one of the biggest changes is not so much a single direction of climate change. We're seeing larger swings in both, uh, both extremes, and particularly for rainfall. Uh, this can and does go both towards heavier rainfall events and also drier periods. Now, if we're looking at the drier periods, what this really means is we're looking for more intense droughts. Uh, the level of moisture in the soil declines for longer periods of time, and there are greater stresses on vegetation, and these can be both crops and native vegetation. This obviously uh, feel feel so. This obviously feeds into uh, pro- poorer crop yields, but it also leads to much higher bushfire risks. Uh, on the other hand, you know we do get these extremely wet periods, and we've uh, been fortunate enough to have about two years worth in this current round. So what this really means is that you know we can actually go and get some periods with extremely profitable uh, weather conditions, and. Um, but what, what we really have to learn is that what were our traditional normal years are no longer the case. We're seeing more extremes in both the you know the really hot, dry conditions and also the, the, the wetter conditions and a reduction in the number of what we traditionally have called the normal years. So we really have to get used to this and, and this um, divergence will tend to increase as we go into future years.
0: So Bruce, we've seen uh, recent weather events throughout New South Wales and Queensland resulting in you know quite sizable flooding activity and in some communities this is the probably the third or fourth time over a period of two years that these events have happened. Um, is this something we can expect to, to be the new normal um, over years ahead as a result of climate change? Uh, it's probably a
1: little bit of a um, yes and no type of answer for that there, Andrew. Uh, as we're looking into climate change, the one of the basic parameters is the, the availability of moisture in the air to actually you know, produce these extremely heavy rainfalls. and we do know that with climate change that for every one degree of temperature increase we see the water can hold about an extra seven percent of moisture Uh, the we know the air temperature in australia has basically gone up about one point five degrees and so that means that there's far more moisture in there to assist the the production of these extremely heavy rain events that lead to all these floods uh... some of the broad-scale drivers too are also tending to go in favour slightly more La Niños over El Ninos as we're heading out into the coming decades uh... research is still evolving so what we say is that it will become easier into the future to have these uh, extremely wet periods and uh, major floods but they won't be continuous so we can't expect to you know, say every year we'll see these major floods uh, at the moment we are going into that uh, third line in which uh, is actually supporting further flood activity but then it should start to you know, flip back the other way into some quite dry periods but overall as we're heading into the future decades the, uh, the ability to produce extremely heavy rain events is becoming easier and easier as the atmospheric system evolves around the Australian region,
0: Bruce. One thing that, that interests me is um, the the viable farming land now across Australia. And I, I cast my my mind back as a uh, coming from from South Australia. There's always the Goiter Line in South Australia, which basically said, you know, farming inside the Goiter Line, you know, will, should should be uh, viable. On the other side of the Goiter Line, will be will be more challenging. Are we seeing more parts of of Australia become less viable through climate change? Do you think? Uh, I think that's definitely the case, Andrew. Uh, the variations
1: uh, are Australia-wide, and the variations do vari- uh, do change depending which part of Australia you go to. Uh, in terms of South Australia, the goiter line is definitely shifting further towards the south, and so that what that means is a contraction towards the coast uh, in terms of the viable broadacre farming. In Western Australia, it used to be the old rapid-proof fence was considered to be more or less the equivalent of a goiter line over here. Uh, and the more viable areas are contracting... Particularly southwards and towards the west coast, and so what it means is we see fewer of your really profitable seasons and more of the unprofitable seasons. And so, say in the past you had you know three years of really good seasons, uh, maybe about five or six uh, was pretty or normal, and two or three bad ones. Uh, Unfortunately, the weighting is gradually changing in those uh, more marginal areas towards maybe four or five unviable seasons, two or three. Uh, normal conditions and about two or three very good conditions and so there's a real skewed um, change to the viability of the agricultural areas. Uh, However to offset that one of the things we have to bear in mind is we have improved access to better quality seasonal uh, predictions and so whereas in the past you'd be a bit sceptical about you know this coming season as being a good one or a bad one now the predictions are far more skillful than they used to be when I was growing up so it's uh, uh, i guess a, a real positive that the farmers can then say in a good season such as the one we have here with us at the moment we will just go out there we'll invest in the you know put out more crops than we would otherwise do uh, whereas in the you know in the prospects of a really bad season you pull right back and you know, basically just cut your losses
0: and that's obviously a bit of a, a case study in itself um but clearly the world has a need to cut carbon pollution and i know iag has a lot to say on risk mitigation can you give us some further examples on some of the risk mitigation measures regional and rural farming communities could be putting in place to safeguard against the changing climate?
1: Uh, certainly, Andrew. Really, there's a uh, multiple prongs of attack that you can actually take with this. You know, the key thing is to really recognise what are the you know the major factors that are likely to change in your particular region. Uh, if you're in a tropical cyclone region, you would try to boost up your um, resilience against future tropical cyclone activity. You know, this can be uh, done through a number of different measures. Uh, if you happen to be alongside rivers, make sure that uh, you've got adequate flood protection in the, the event of a major river flood. Uh, if you're vulnerable to winds, and here your above ground irrigators can be a case in point, uh, bear in mind we have seen major damage for, uh, to irrigators from the winds from the tropical cyclones. So all you have to do is make sure that there are suitable tie down points for these irrigators ahead of time so that you can protect them uh, from the impact of a tropical cyclone. And if you happen to be in the um, uh, the, you know, the very fortunate position where you're building new infrastructure, then you can build it to a higher building code. So just it means a case of you know, just seeing what you can do, and sometimes you can do it at a fairly low cost, you know, just increase the resilience of the, you know, the roofing structures uh, and maybe some extra barriers to you know, protect the windows and, and vulnerable doors as well. So several things in that sense. Also in the area of crops, bearing in mind that what were the historical climates in your particular region may no longer be the case into the future. But there are opportunities there to vary a crops and to vary the stocking types to cater for what is the new climate regime. Uh, we've seen this a fair amount in the uh, viticultural area where we're seeing different varieties of grapes being planted in areas uh, uh, that they weren't planted in the past. Uh, for example, I have actually seen that there are quite a few new vineyards popping up here in the southwest of Western Australia and also across Tasmania in areas that uh, previously weren't considered to be worthy of growing grapes. So there's these kind of uh, changes that we need to sort of think, well, what is possible in my particular area? And, you know, the solutions there do vary from place to place. Uh, it's really a fairly complex issue, but uh, yeah, there are solutions out there if you search around for them.
0: Thanks, Bruce. And, and I was actually talking to a farmer a few months ago who was unfortunate enough to have suffered a claim and... Uh, as part of the uh, the restoring the, the the farm building that was damaged by by strong wind, um, they did seek our, our our involvement in what what to be done to to safeguard uh, that building for for the future. So certainly, I think the, the the awareness is growing, and it was great to have that conversation.
1: Yes, that's right, Andrew. And it's one thing too that uh, we should note that there've been some really good uh, retrofitting initiatives being rolled out, and particularly in southeast Queensland. Oh, sorry, in Queensland, and uh, that's where you know the government will actually go out in partnership. With individuals to help help strengthen these you know previously very vulnerable buildings, basically bring them up to the moral, you know to the modern uh, tropical Cycling building code, uh, where the expenses shared between the government and the and the individual.
0: Yeah, thanks Bruce. Look, I guess it's easy to get caught up on all the negatives of climate change. Um, do you see any positives about uh, in respect to climate change?
1: Uh, I think there are, and I think Australia is probably in a fairly good place to capitalise on some of those. Uh, you've got many of the uh, developed nations around the world are uh, committing to net zero emissions by the year 2050, and so that really opens up a huge market to carbon sequestration uh, opportunities. And uh, you know, in the farming areas there, you can actually take upon a few different areas where you can sequester carbon into soils as one opportunity, or to you know get some hardwood crops, hardwood forests, or other types of vegetation where you can actually get a um, a financial benefit from converting what may have been pasture land into forest or some sort of wooded um, uh, types of crop into the future. Now, these opportunities will be evolving over time. uh, So it's really a case of saying, hey, uh, what can we do as an Australian community to help to offset some of the carbon emissions Uh, and there would be financial incentives uh, to move down that path.
0: So, Bruce, I can't let you leave without uh, getting the seasonal outlook from you for spring and summer
1: uh certainly there uh, andrew it, it's really looking like uh, a continuation quite a, a rare event a continuation of essentially la nina type of conditions all the way through probably into about the middle to end of summer we've got the combination that we have seen for the past two years uh, a reasonably well-developed la nina across the pacific ocean and it's been supported by the indian-ocean dipole being in what we call the negative mode so both of those are very good rain producers particularly through central australia and for the eastern parts of australia so that's Queensland, New South Wales, and especially Victoria north of the ranges. So we are seeing, I expect to see further bursts of quite heavy rainfall through spring and into summer for those reasons. For uh, the agricultural areas of Western Australia, it's a little bit more patchy. Uh, we should still see sufficient rain uh, to get finishing for the wheat crops or the broadacre crops. Uh, but it's going to be you know, longer dry periods as far as Western Australia is concerned, especially in that southwestern corner. But for the Eastern States, several bursts of quite heavy rainfall. Uh, likely to lead to further flooding. And as we head through the summer months, we were also looking at a fairly early onset tropical cyclone season, uh, fairly active throughout the season, at least through until the, um, the end of summer. Uh, probably more active for the northwest of the Pilbara, uh, Arafura Sea, uh, still a slightly above average for uh, the Coral Sea as well. So it looks like being essentially quite wet uh, in terms of thunderstorms. Fairly active thunderstorms for the southwestern parts of New South Wales, the Victoria North, of the Ranges, and also a little bit up the, north, uh, so the northern rivers parts of New South Wales in particular. So these are your thunderstorms that are likely to generate some bursts of fairly large hail uh, and a few incursions of large hail producing thunderstorms down the heat trough that tends to form in the inland parts of the southwest of Western Australia through those late spring into summer periods. And they'll probably track across as far as the agricultural areas of South Australia from time to time as well. So it looks like being a fairly active period in terms of weather is concerned over the summer months or the spring and summer months. Uh, in terms of fire weather, eastern states in general fairly quiet apart from South Australia and Western Australia, southwestern areas. Uh, those areas will be above normal temperatures but uh, for large parts of inland and eastern New South Wales, uh, Victoria North of the Ranges and southeastern parts of Queensland, uh, tend to be a little bit more of a suppressed fire weather season this year. So it's really a, you know, a continuation of what we've seen for the, you know, the past two years.
0: Thanks for that, Bruce. Always very informative and we'll, uh, we'll look to see how, how that forecast pans out. So thanks very much. So thanks for listening to the podcast today. For more information on IAG's climate research, you can head to iag.com.au and search for climate research. Thank you and look forward to talking next time.